0: Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, part of the Demcast Network. I'm Kimberly Johnson, sheltering in place in D.C., and today my guest is Julian Zelizer. His latest book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party, was just released yesterday. He is a historian at Princeton University and a CNN political analyst. He's a contributor to NPR's Here and Now and the co-host of Politics and Polls. He's written 20 books on American politics, so he is a great person to talk to, and his, he did a very thorough kind of investigation of um, Newt Gingrich's effects on American politics and wrote all about it, so maybe investigation isn't the best word, but you know he's a historian, so he did his thing, and he was a really interesting guest because definitely you can see the parallels of what Newt Gingrich specifically did back in the 80s, to what is happening today. And I'm going to add, after the interview, I did my little outro and I talked about another book that I think would be a really good book to accompany this one. Um, and it's basically about how the John Birch Society eventually turned into the Tea Party and gained, le- gained legislative power in 2010. So those two books are great, but definitely you're going to check out this book by Julian because um I think it's going to offer a lot of insight, just as Mary Trump's book is offering insight into, I think, Donald Trump's psyche. It's not that we needed to know that he's unfit, but she's going to offer details that we didn't have. And that's what I think this book is about. The, the Gingrich book is very much about the details that, you know, se- obviously get glossed over when we're just paying attention to the headlines and to the overall political conversation. So this is definitely a good interview worth listening to. Before uh, I get into the Start Me Up podcast is independent and all that, I just want to say that (laughs) real quick too, I, I freaked out on Monday because I got a slight temperature And then it happened again on Tuesday. So basically I got a temperature of like 99.1 around 530 in the afternoon. And then around 11 o'clock at night, it went up to 99.5. I was a little concerned because I had a bit of a dull headache and I felt kind of tired, exhausted. And then I woke up on Tuesday and I was like no temperature and, or it was 98.6. And then I, during the course of the day, same symptoms were coming back. And by about 530, my temperature was back up. So It never went past a hundred. So I was doing some reading and just in case anybody's experiencing this, I don't know why. This happened to me before COVID, where I think it was two or three separate times, and I don't remember if it was in the fall or like in January or something, but I started I got like a, a mild temperature increase and didn't feel great. Like didn't feel sick, but just didn't feel great. And then it went away the next morning and then came back. So for two nights in a row, I would have this like low grade temperature. So I don't know what the hell is going on with me. I don't know if it's hormones or allergies or what, but I didn't really think that it was COVID. But of course, you know, you're going through it and you're like, okay, my temperature is going up. So what I did read, A, from the Mayo Clinic, outside of COVID, when you have a temperature, basically you're just you should leave it alone. I mean, unless you're like really, like really, really sick, you should leave it alone because they plays, it plays itself out and then it builds up your immunity. But I read an article about COVID and I had absolutely outside of a dull headache, which, you know, I, I get anyway, occasionally, um, I didn't really have any other symptoms, no cough, no, you know, like no sneezing, no congestion. No, I, I, I have my sense of smell and my sense of taste. There's just like nothing. So um, I read, though, that it's not considered a fever until it hits 100 degrees. So just FYI, I thought that was interesting. Now, I don't remember where I read that. It was an article about COVID, and I do know it was a respected um, publication website that wrote, you know, that I was reading about this on. But anyway, so I just didn't meet any of the criteria for COVID, and I was a little concerned. And it was funny because my mom said, well, you should go get tested. And I said, so if I have it, what am I going to (laughs) do? (laughs) <laughs> it's like, they're not going to give me any medicine. I mean, yes, I know it would help to know this, uh, but I don't really get to see very many people anyway. I don't go out very much. And I, I told her, okay, if my, if, I, if my symptoms worsen or if it, you know, something like that, then I'll go get tested. But because I had had this exa- exact same experience prior to covid um, I kind of felt like I think it, it's just something else. So I don't know what it was, but I'm fine now. It's, I didn't have any kind of rise in my temperature yesterday. And, and they also said anything between 99.1 and 99.5, which is what I had, is is not considered a fever. It has to be 100 degrees. So FYI, anybody out there who might be experiencing anything like that, um, if you're nervous, I did some research maybe you can benefit from it. And hopefully if you are experiencing something like that, you could feel good. But I guess, I guess the most responsible thing to say is to get a test. I just didn't feel like I needed one at this point because I I certainly don't need to go to the hospital. So um, there's that. (laughs) All right. So the Start Me Up podcast is an independent podcast and it's supported by listeners. It's also woman run. Hey, I'm the woman. Um, I don't use corporate backers and I don't use advertisers, at least I don't right now. Um, So it's patrons, just like you, who keep this show going. And I'm ever so grateful for everybody who supports the show. Um, And if you like today's show, you might want to check out some of the other guests that I have. I interview actors slash celebrities, and sometimes I just focus on their craft. Other times when I talk to them, we also incorporate politics. But most of my guests are, uh, whether political pundits or just people who like to talk about politics, political junkies like myself. Um, it's, It's, you know, we talk about social issues, feminist issues occasionally Um, so check out some of those shows just visit patreon.com slash start me up and you can go to the about section of the page and and see those guests you can also see the different tiers so like if you start if you donate two dollars a month which is almost like nothing, and you'll never miss it. You'll get all the free shows, which I do two per week, delivered to your email box. I also do two patrons-only shows. So the way that's gonna that's working starting this month is if you are signed up for a dollar to four dollars, and you can sign up for any dollar amount. You don't have to follow the tiers that I have. You can do anything. You could sign up for you know forty-five dollars a month or hundred dollars a month, whatever you want to do. That would be awesome. Or you know two dollars or six dollars. So if you sign up for two dollars, or I should say four dollars or less then you're going to get one of the patrons-only shows. If you sign up for $5, then you'll get both of the patrons-only shows because, like I said, I do two per month. And those shows are a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more personal, and most often done with Steph Walton, who used to be my ongoing um, co-host, but now she comes back for those patrons-only shows. But she also does uh, free shows with me at times. And we always talk about politics, and everybody loves when, when Steph's on the show. So... Definitely, you're going to want to go, I, I like to remind everybody that you have the option also of doing like a one-time donation at the on the Patreon description of my show, of every show. I include my email address, and so you can do that. Also, my birthday is next, is it next Friday? Yeah, it's next Friday, July 17th. So there's that. <laughs> also, don't forget in the description of each one of my shows from now on, I'm going to include the link to my mom's latest book, The Melt, which is a dystopian thriller. And it's about a global pandemic. Can you believe it that she started writing in December of 2016? But the the book is more focused on life after the pandemic. So don't forget to check that link. And of course, Start Me Up is found on, you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you find Other podcasts, you find, start me up. So I always ask this please, please, please stop by iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and become a subscriber because it's totally free. And I've noticed that a bunch of people have been giving me ratings now. Thank you. I appreciate it. And just a little reminder if you're there, you can also leave me a good review because there's always these jerks on Twitter who see me, you know, running my big mouth and they don't like it and they go to, you know, give me negative reviews. So I'd love to counter some of those negative reviews with the positive. It really helps. Anyway, that's enough of me uh, asking for your support. By the way, I always want to say thank you and I'm grateful. I love doing the show. So all the support that I receive is always appreciated and I'm always grateful and I'm always thankful. But now, um, let's just get to my conversation and my interview with Julian Zelizer. Welcome to the podcast, Julian.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, you're an interesting guy, and you wrote an interesting book, uh, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. And, yeah, I don't really like Newt Gingrich, so I'm kind of interested in this book. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, he's, he's one of those figures a lot of people don't like and don't <laughs> admire, but they understand he was consequential uh, yes. to the world in which we live. And that's the spirit of writing a book about him.
0: So what made you decide to write this book?
1: Well, I was really interested. I started writing it during the Obama years, and I was very interested in understanding how the Republican Party became what it is today, Mm -hmm. how did this style of partisanship that we see, which is incredibly fierce and institution-breaking, how did that become normal? And I read so much about... The history of partisanship and all these big forces people talk about, uh, like gerrymandering and the media. I also want to understand who are some of the people who made it this way? Mm-hmm. Who are some of the individuals? And and it kept coming back to Newt. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I decided to embark on this history of how did this guy become one of the leaders of the GOP?
0: Mm-hmm. Wow, that's interesting. So how, how did he um, or how would you say that he helped to transform American politics? Well, he
1: introduced and promoted at the highest levels of power a kind of smash mouth partisanship, Mm -hmm. uh, which pushed the boundaries of what was permissible. It it Mm -hmm. said instead of balancing the needs of partisanship with the needs of governance, let's just go all in with partisanship. So you can say basically whatever you want in public about your opponents or uh, about anyone who's causing you problems. You can use the most blistering language. You Mm -hmm. can assassinate their character uh, in public. And you can also take things that uh, government depended on, procedures and rules, and weaponize them Mm -hmm. and use them as a way for your party to win power. And uh, he put all of that together very effectively, and he basically convinced fellow Republican leaders that this was the way of the future.
0: You know, one of the questions that I wanted to ask is, I see people like Newt Gingrich or, you know, some of these people in the GOP, Mitch McConnell, any of them, and they're just so egregious and their behavior is so awful, yet if, um, if Democrats or even the media calls them out they they're able to hide behind this shield of like i'm a religious person or I'm, I'm a moral person i mean he was uh gingrich was part of the moral majority correct
1: well he was although personally he never kind of lived a life that even pretended to replicate what right. they were talking about uh you know ma- many marriages many yeah. relationships Uh, but what you're saying was very true about him. He was often called out for his moral behavior. He was often called out for being profoundly unethical, (sighs) even as he was accusing others of doing the same, Mm -hmm. but he didn't care. Uh, He he would go in front of the cameras and say, oh, it's just different. Uh, And it's a kind of brazen attitude uh, in face of scandal that allowed him not to concede and to keep moving forward. Where Democrats would often... Buckle at the knees uh, and and just kind of almost give up when right. faced with these charges.
0: That's just that frustrates me. Um, I wish that the Democrats would kind of learn some of not the, the really dirty, gross tricks, but some of the more aggressive campaigning in order to or at least not get, like you say, buckle at the knees. Um, let me ask you this. When, okay, when this all started, when, when, when he was rising and, and he was uh, utilizing some of those tactics that you're talking about, did um, were Republican leaders with him or did they try to stop him? What was their opinion of him?
1: Well, they said they were against him. And, and most Republican leaders in the 80s, this is before he becomes speaker, they're watching what he does and they're listening to what he says and they're like, oh, that's not good. And, uh, we're not like that. Uh, we're not like Newt. But what was really interesting in in writing the book was that quietly they start to accept what he's going to do, and eventually publicly. So the leader of the Republicans in the House of Representatives is this guy Bob Michael. He's from Illinois. He's a very quiet, get-along kind of Republican. Never says anything untoward. But over the course of the 80s, he starts to echo a lot of what gingrich is saying about the democrats how they're totally corrupt and broken and uh, even george hw bush who's the vice president runs for president in 1988 and he's the icon of civil republican Mm -hmm. politics he starts to echo Hmm. some of the themes in his campaign that gingrich is putting forward so uh, they embrace what he's doing and, and my story ends with they're electing him to be the house minority whip, which uh, for most listeners might not sound like much, but it's actually an important leadership position that Mm -hmm. puts you on the path to being speaker. So the point is the party establishment, the party guardians, they let him into the Mm door.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, um, you know, it's kind of like Trump, right? Where people could see that he was not, I mean, like evangelicals like him because he's basically going to help them out. So it doesn't matter that he is just a horrible person and doesn't even try to hide it. They will swallow his lies and they will swallow his um, egregious behavior just so that they can get what they're looking for, whether it's judges or ruling, you know, Supreme Court rulings on abortion and things like that. And so let me ask you, what is what would you like? How do you tie Gingrich into the Trump era?
1: Well, uh, first, in terms of what you said, that was exactly true back then. It's the same right. phenomenon. And, and back then what they wanted, it wasn't judges yet. Republicans in Congress just wanted to have power. They had been out of power since the 1950s. And, and when there's a vote, for him when there's a vote for this minority whip position he gets the vote of people like olympia snow Mm -hmm. uh from maine uh, a familiar voice these days and nancy (laughs) Johnson moderates who say we don't like gingrich but you know what we're gonna vote for him because he'll bring us power uh and and i think that phenomenon is still very true today with trump you see many republicans who uh, you know, maybe put aside what they say privately and yeah. are more than willing to vote for him, to stand by him for the judges, for the mm-hmm. uh, hold of certain states. Um, but then there's Trump himself. I think Trump practices a kind of politics that for me is very familiar after studying Gingrich, a say-anything kind mm-hmm. of political rhetoric and a willingness to take basic institutions like the presidency Uh, and the Department of Justice, and twist them to partisan purposes.
0: So um, why are Republicans going into the convention with this kind of party? And, I mean, did it start, like, did this whole thing start with Gingrich or did it start earlier?
1: I think it starts with Gingrich. I mean... Obviously, before Gingrich, you have radical elements of the Republican Party that, uh, you know, echo themes of of white nationalism, which you often hear from Mm -hmm. the current president and yet very right wing Republicans. But Gingrich is the one who takes this 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 style and mentality of total partisan warfare and puts it in the halls of power. And he he makes it part of the political leadership rather than people on the fringes. He's the Joe McCarthy who becomes the head of the Republican Party. And and so that's why it's such a game changer. And I think since Gingrich becomes Speaker in 1994. His approach really becomes the norm. I think hmm. Republicans of his generation, Tea Party Republicans who come into office in the 2010s, 2010s, I think they just see this as how you do business. Uh, and so it's cooked into the party. And And that's why we go into the convention uh, with this particular Republican Party. It's not because of Donald Trump. Right. Donald Trump is because of the Republican Party. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So basically, uh, would you say that Gingrich basically pioneered the, the kind of blistering rhetoric that we hear from Trump, including you know his latest speech uh, in Mount Rushmore?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, he Pioneered it on his own, and he urged other Republicans to use the same kind of language. And he also was very focused on using this in front of the media. He was a he was a, a TV politician also, mm-hmm. uh, and he loved to stir up trouble. But uh, I have in the uh, in the book in 1990. Gingrich uh, spreads around uh, the Republican Party this memo through something called GOPAC, and it's about what's the language to use, and he said, it's called Language, a Key Mechanism of Control. Mm-hmm. And the memo said to Republicans, if you want to speak like Newt, you have to use these kinds of words about Democrats, and the words are like corruption, mm-hmm. traitor, sick, shame, pathetic, uh, really, you know, wow. uh, language, you, And and so when you hear a speech like the Rushmore speech or Mm -hmm. just look at the Twitter feed, you're hearing Trump speak like Newt. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think there's a line between those two figures.
0: Do you think that Donald Trump's uh, language and the way he uses words is something that he was, or uh, how can I say this? Do you think people are feeding him those words? Or do you think that Donald Trump is just somebody who naturally behaves that way and then, um, you know follows somebody like Gingrich as opposed to, you know, being fed that kind of language?
1: Well, he I mean, we know that uh, Trump watches a lot of Fox television. (laughs) He's watched it over the years. And and, uh, Gingrich and and his generation of Republicans are a presence there. And that's how they speak. And that's how the hosts speak. And so uh, there's a direct feeder, I think, Mm -hmm. for President Trump. I think President Trump doesn't mind that language either. Right. My guess is this is his comfort level in terms yeah. of how he speaks. But I guess the important point is other Republicans are fine with it. Uh, and, and so they have a comfort level, and, and that tells you a lot about the party. Um, so I don't know if it's being fed or it's him or it's a combo of both, which mm-hmm. is what I think. Right. Uh, but just as important, it rests pretty comfortably in the GOP yeah. as they hear him say all this.
0: Do you, now, I'm going to ask you something that's I'm sure you did not write about in your book, which I have yet to read, but I did read a little bit, and I'm just curious what you think as far as the Russia situation. Um, do you think that so many Republicans, especially people like Lindsey Graham... Uh, who said that the party would be destroyed if they nominated somebody like Trump and now turn around and, you know, he's, he basically kisses his behind all the time and he, he's just completely done a 180. And, you know, I've often thought that maybe some of the reasons, some of these Republicans who used to be against Trump and who are now defending him like Ted Cruz too, um, do you think it has anything to do with... Russians because they they hacked the DNC and we found out for the most part You know what they found, but they also hacked the RNC and we never found out what? uh, Came from that so Russians have dirt on So many Republicans and also I'm going to add throw into this that you know Trump is also known for hiring You know uh, people to get dirt on his opponents opponents just to make them loyal So do you think that some of these Republicans right now who didn't used to like Trump and who are acting like they're besties, do you think it has anything to do with that Russian um, possible blackmail? Or do you think it's that everybody's just towing the party line and they just want power? And and then and then. okay, And then so I'll ask you that. And then I have a follow up. (laughs) Uh, I have
1: no idea. It it could be. Uh, It's a it's a theory. It's plausible. But I also don't think it would take that much. I never did for Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham to abandon the rhetoric they used about Trump in the primaries in 2016 and support him. They are Mm -hmm. party loyalists through and through. Mm -hmm. And most of what President Trump pushes for fits perfectly in what they wanted, Uh, You hard line on immigration, deregulation, tax cuts. In some ways, he's pretty familiar to them, yeah. and so it, it might be. I, I I have zero idea. I will admit that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's also interesting is you don't even need that. I think mm-hmm. to to understand why these Republicans would flip, they are loyal thoroughly to mm-hmm. the party line.
0: So what you know? What do you think? Okay, I I'm with you. I think that you take out the possibility of blackmail. And you just have the party loyalty. And that's why they're going to stand behind Trump. Now, his numbers are starting to go down. And how, how much, like, how do you think the Republicans are going to behave if his, I mean, is there any number that they'd start abandoning, abandoning him? Would they, um, w- at what point would they abandon him?
1: well it won't be a poll number. I think it would the, the only way this happens would be post election actually okay uh where where the results are so severe, the kind of election we haven't had since nineteen eighty four where Republicans are trounced and they lose power in the mm-hmm. Senate, they lose power in the House, they lose the presidency that's the only thing that will leave them maybe scratching their heads and saying. We're going to have to change. We're going to have to let mm. newer voices into the party. Otherwise, I think even if the poll numbers are slipping, they're still going to bet on Trump and they're going to bet on the Electoral College protecting them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's just where their instinct is. And, and I don't think they see a way out, at least in the next few months.
0: Yeah. So um, one of the one of the things that I wanted to ask you is it's very frustrating to see, I mean, I'm a Democrat, so it's, it's frustrating for me to see Republicans just sinking to so many kinds of lows. And obviously, um, Gingrich is part of that. Um, why don't Democrats play the political hardball? I mean, I've seen people like Adam Schiff, who he's definitely eloquent and on the right side of things, but it's like these people like Gingrich are coming to this fight and they've got a gun and Democrats have a butter knife. And how do we win? So w- why? <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, this this imbalance, this is there in the 80s. It's it's when he brings down the speaker, Newt Gingrich, the speaker, the Democrats, they don't even see it coming. They don't understand what's happening and, and they really don't in the end engage in the same kind of politics. Uh, Steve Bannon has a quote a little like what you said. He says, uh, this is Trump's former advisor, that uh, Republicans come for the head wound Mm -hmm. and uh, Democrats come for a pillow fight. And (laughs) I think there's an imbalance in the parties. And and there's a reason that Republicans went Gingrich where Democrats are still scared to do that, Mm -hmm. I think. It gets to the essence of the parties, meaning Mm -hmm. Democrats ultimately believe in government. Mm -hmm. And even with the differences of the moderates and the progressives, they believe government is a good thing. And so if you practice a partisanship that ultimately makes governance impossible and renders government Mm -hmm. dysfunctional, Democrats can't afford that because you've just lost the institution you depend on. Republicans have a a philosophy where they don't like government and they don't really want it to grow other than in a few areas. And I think they're much more comfortable tying it up in knots. It doesn't go against what they're championing. Interesting. So I think Democrats are just inherently constrained and won't go as far as Republicans are comfortable doing. I,
0: You know, I often say that I think, de- you know, I don't think Democrats should sink to the behaviors, especially of somebody like Newt Gingrich. But I've always maintained that, um, you know, Even though I wish that I could see them going a little more aggressive, I totally get what you're saying and it makes a lot of sense. Therefore, I would love to see Democrats making um, an effort, an ongoing, you know, like all year, 365 day effort, whether it's online or bought advertisements on television or radio or something where they could help to educate the public on, you know, what Democrats have accomplished and that has been beneficial to the American people as well as, you know, like if they're going to talk, they could talk about government because when I was a young girl, I really didn't pay any attention to politics and I didn't really learn about, I didn't, I wasn't taught civics in school and I've maintained, you know, over time that if I were I think that if I, you know, if I were in high school and I had learned that the president nominates a Supreme Court justice and then the Senate votes on a Supreme Court justice, if I had understood, you know, the importance of a a Supreme Court justice and then how they're elected and chosen, I would have been more engaged politically. And I just, I wish, I'm just, I'm just throwing this out. There's not even a question, but it's just, I, I wish the Democrats, you know, they don't necessarily, they don't have to fight like the Republicans, but I, I see this gaping hole where they have an opportunity. And not only that, they have all these celebrities who are Democrats and, and always, you know, whether it's tweeting or um, posting on Facebook or, or doing PSAs, there would be people who would be more than happy to volunteer their, volunteer their time to help like an ed- an ongoing education campaign, the importance of voting and 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 you know what have Democrats done for this country and all that I, I wish that they would do that because then they get to stick with their you know pro government stance and you know possibly i don 't know convince people who are not engaged. you know I, I think they could bring children in I think children and celebrities would be fantastic because it would it might bring in people who are not who like my young self when I was not paying attention if I would have seen like a fun video or something like that with with Democrats teaching but in a fun way I might have been interested in politics at an earlier age so I'm just throwing that out there <laughs> I don't know what you think I
1: think it's a really important suggestion and it gets to how Democrats think of education of the media of outreach and and what people call messaging uh i think there's a lot of work that democrats don't yet really do yeah um in a way republicans do it incredibly well uh even if you oppose them and i think that's an area where democrats can be more aggressive without being gingrich-like uh but but do more of that work of conveying why their party matters and why their yeah. party traditions matter. They can also be more, you know, you don't have to be ugly partisan to be more direct about what the risks are mm-hmm. of of yeah. your opposition. Exactly. And, uh, it's it's remarkable still to see some of the hesitance that Democrats have, even in campaign ads about President Trump and some of the things he's doing, uh, which are kind of common sense and obvious, but, but they're still almost playing by rules written 20 or 30 years yeah.
0: ago. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, so let's just, let's just say Trump loses, please, please, please. So let's just say there's like this big landslide and Democrats take control of everything and it's blue, blue, blue. Um, do you think that – do you think Republicans will – do some soul searching to understand where trump came from because i don't think that they will at this point but do you think if that if we get a big blue wave do you think that they will do that
1: yeah i mean uh, you know, i'm I'm thinking of the news that tucker carlson might run for president and <laughs> oh God, so yeah. th- that kind of you know leads leads to questions about the direction of the yeah. party but I think it could happen, and, and not for moral or principled reasons, that, that right. if you're a party that's thoroughly partisan, you think constantly about uh, about how do you hold, to the, hold the electorate and how do you yeah. expand your power, that will raise questions. I mean, Senator McConnell will not be happy if he's in the minority uh, come <laughs> 2021. <laughs> yeah. And if Democrats have a big enough Senate majority, they're starting to push their issues through that will upset him, that will anger yeah. him. Uh and so I think not only do the people in office do some soul searching if that happens, but also there'll be more younger voices, not mm-hmm. Tucker Carlson types. Uh but people who really have an alternative to the current party who the new Newt Gingrich is, you could imagine some saying we need to do something differently. This is mm-hmm. just destructive to our party. I don't know if that will happen, but that's the way in which I could imagine Uh, That path emerging.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've heard I've heard the notion that the party could split. Um, And I just I don't know. I mean, there's there's definitely I want to ask you a little later about the never Trumpers. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I was talking to my boyfriend, Bob Seska, and he was, you know, I don't necessarily trust the never Trumpers, but I'm happy to share their videos. And if, because, you know, an attack coming from a conservative, I think is even more effective, um, in some cases, especially under our current cir- circumstances. But, um, there was a suggestion, you know, as I was telling him privately, we were just talking and, and I, and I said, I'm concerned because I see some of the people at the Lincoln project, uh, specifically for me, George Conway, I don't trust him. I look at somebody like Rick Wilson or Steve Schmidt. And while I don't agree with their political ideologies or some of their tactics, I kind of, and, and I might be naive about this, but I kind of just look at them as Republicans. I look at George Conway and I completely don't trust him. I don't understand his relationship with his wife. And, and, and while I guess I'll just bring up the them now and ask you about them now, but, um, you know, I mean, their marriage is none of my business. And I don't care what goes on personally. But it just seems very odd to me that he's very outspoken, um, yet is married to a woman who fiercely defends him and lies to the public constantly. And I just, you know, I also know he had a hand in Brett Kavanaugh being uh, put on the Supreme Court. And so I'm not sure about him. But um, my boyfriend had said something like, because I said, you know, I, I worry that these never Trumpers right now are going to get more power uh especially i don't know be the democratic party but it, but i think that they might have more influence in politics overall especially if they help us get biden elected and then does that mean we're going to see more of them on msnbc are they going to be hired are, are, are liberals going to be inundated with this never trumper you know conservative idea um and then so what he suggested could be a possibility, and this is very helpful, and I would love this, but I don't know, is that there that the Democratic Party could be split into two, where you could have like a progressive wing of the party, and I don't mean the fringe part, but the progressive, let's say Elizabeth Warren type wing of the party, and then you have the the Republicans that would be, you know, the Rick Wilsons and the Steve Schmitz. Uh, so I guess the question is, First, first question is: Do you do you see a possibility, like the hopeful possibility, where it would split between you know more progressive Democrats and then you know centrist Republicans as the two parties, or do you think that the Republican Party could split and go like from what it is now, like you could have maybe a more centrist version and then the crazy, <laughs> the craziness that it is now? Like, which, I which is more, more likely?
1: I, I mean, I would be more. Uh I'd say I'd lean toward the idea that the Democrats are going to broaden. I mean, in general, it has been a party that has moved in that direction already. You Mm -hmm. saw that in the 2018 midterms uh, where you had lots of progressives and you also had lots of people who were more moderate. And I think there's more space in the Democratic Party for, I I don't know, George Conway, uh, but certainly some of the prominent republicans who are frustrated with their party to to join in and many of them are endorsing joe biden so mm-hmm. you can already see uh, how that might happen it, it's still hard to see the republican party being a, a big tent party right uh they're, they're very laser focused on the constituency they support now on a very particular set of issues and show no indication that they're going to have room for people like George Conway uh, or Rick Wilson. Mm -hmm. Conway is a bit of a mystery, I agree. (laughs) Um, It's hard to imagine the Republican Party really embracing very vocal critics, Mm -hmm. not only of President Trump, but of that whole type of Republican politics. Uh, Whereas the Democrats have much more room for that. Mm -hmm. I think in the end, the Republicans will banish people who are not with them. Uh, I don't think they're going to find room for them.
0: So do you – what do you think – I mean, what are your thoughts on the Lincoln Party – I mean, I'm sorry, the Lincoln Project and the Never Trump crowd?
1: Yeah, I mean, one thought is they're much more effective than the Democrats in their ads, Mm -hmm. and it kind of – it gets to what we've been talking about. It's in their DNA to play hard politics, (laughs) and so their ads are the most blistering I've seen against President Trump, the most direct, uh, the most – uh, the, the toughest, but they're a minority. They're still, yeah. you know, they're a very small part of the party. Uh, most never Trumpers are all in on Trump. Uh, and the only ones who have broken, it's a handful. We could probably mm-hmm. name them in the next few minutes. And so it doesn't represent a sea change to me. Mm-hmm. It's just some outliers who, uh, for whatever reason, publicly have decided to bolt. Um, but doesn't mean they're ineffective. They're all media savvy, mm-hmm. they're all Washington centered and I mm-hmm. do think they can have an effect on the election.
0: Yeah, so do I. I mean they basically uh, many of them have left the party but they've uh they're still conservative. They've just switched over to independent. And so I don't know if they found if if a Republican party emerged that made them happy, I don't know if they'd go back. But I wanted to also ask you about like dirty tricks, uh the, the kinds of dirty tricks Gingrich introduced in the 80s. Um like how are they, uh, similar to what we're seeing in the Trump president? Like how, again, how does it connect? Because we see, I mean, from Trump, it's just egregious what we're seeing the the ridiculous um, statements that he makes and the outright lies. So how is that like tied to the dirty tricks of Ging- Gingrich in the eighties?
1: Well, that is something Gingrich would do. He would just say whatever he wanted to disparage an opponent. Uh, when he brings down Speaker, he criminalizes him. He, he takes stories from this guy's record, and he makes him look as if he's violating the law, and he's mm-hmm. willing to do that. It doesn't yeah. have to be grounded in truth. He could take bits and pieces of stories and, and say they're something other than what they are. He's willing to say whatever he wanted in front of the media. Uh, And all of that sounds very familiar if you've been following President Trump. So, uh, you know, I think I think all of that is very Gingrich like. And, uh, you know, Gingrich was also very open in in saying, I'm going to use things like ethics rules and just turn them into something uh, that's for partisan warfare. Uh, They're not about cleaning up government. I'm just going to use them for my own purposes. Fast forward to Donald Trump taking the Department of Justice, which is an institution of law and order, and turning it into an arm of his campaign. Um, So I think these are very connected dirty tricks and just uh, open abuse of institutional power.
0: Are you familiar with the John Birch Society? Yes. So, would you say that Gingrich is kind of like a an evolution of that? To some extent,
1: I think more Gingrich was willing to toy with those elements of the party and to uh you know, make statements that today we'd call dog whistles mm-hmm. to those parts of the party the extremists than he himself Being all in, he he really, you know, he's situational in what he cares about, other than power. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so I think he also is familiar today, and that there's Republicans who might not be John Birchers or the equivalent today, but are more than happy to have them in the coalition. (laughs) I think that's how I would see Gingrich as well.
0: Interesting. And so, how would you say that he weaponized the media and uh, basically the anti-corruption reforms in the '70s to make them? the brass knuckle tools of partisanship
1: well with the media he really understood that you can say outrageous things and Mm -hmm. a lot of the media will just echo them and report on what he said and by the time they were corrected or fixed it was really too late uh because it was out there and so i think that was one of the principal uh tactics that he used um i also think he understood how investigative journalists out of Watergate who were doing good work and trying to really understand how money and politics worked, that when they reported on stories that were still a little gray, Mm -hmm. uh, they were just trying to figure out how the system worked, a politician could take them and say, these are like, you know, they're like comic books. There's a villain and there Mm -hmm. is a good person and the Democrats are the villain. And you see that today, too. Uh, And journalists just become fodder. Uh, for, for the party. And ethics reforms, finally, uh, again, they were made in the 70s to try to uh, hold politicians accountable. But uh, under the hands of a party leader like Gingrich, they could be used to attack the Democrats and, again, find areas of gray or ambiguous acts and behavior and make them look villainous. Uh, right. and, and he did all of that. Yeah. And, and so when you're done with that, Journalism, ethics rules, no one trusts them anymore because they're just part of the political circus.
0: Oh, that's just so frustrating. And, I mean, uh, he basically – would you say that that Gingrich is responsible for um, killing the, like, previously genteel conventional norms of Washington? Do you think it was Gingrich specifically that changed – Uh, the way it not, you know, politics and the way politics are reported on.
1: Yeah, I I don't think he did it on his own, but he was one of the leaders for sure. Yeah. Uh, And he was so explicit about it and he was so successful at it. That's the most important. It it worked. Uh, And so I think once you see someone do something and and it works, once you see a politician say, who cares about civility? I'm going to do it this way. And, and he gets the power that the Republicans craved. It's hard to put that back in the bottle. Uh, and so I do think he was a prime player. So good at the media. He was so visible on the national stage, on television, in print, that I think his style, this argument, really got out there. It wasn't an inside Washington story just. He made this incredibly visible because the media was his platform.
0: Wow. Um... So what do you think is the cost of Gingrich prioritizing partisanship over governance at every turn?
1: Well, we're living it in this pandemic. Uh, Oh, yeah. We're in a pandemic now since February and and certainly since early March. And just as a historian, it's easier to write about the history than live through it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, But you watch at so many turns when the White House, at every turn, when the White House is just following clearly what its short term political impulses are rather than what experts are saying is necessary and you see mm-hmm. red state governors and congressional republicans doing the same. It's been a huge fiasco uh, and we've watched uh you know when when governance isn't a priority, these kinds of massive mistakes are made and e- Even wearing a face mask Mm -hmm. has become something a party has decided to ridicule, mock, and and use as a wedge. And so the costs in this case are, you know, we're still shutting down and this virus is still spreading. Um, And and so there it's very visible to me. Uh, And and just over the long term, I mean, the the Trump presidency uh, and the way he is able to do everything does without real pushback from his party other than a handful of never trumpers that is a cost for the country this yeah. is now the normal uh this is what young americans who are in high school and in college they think this is what politics is about and it can be about this and that's a huge loss for the country
0: it is but there's also i think in this particular uh generation coming up their experience especially with covid i mean they're going to have you know let's say teenagers today are going to have similar reactions, or I should say, like my grandmother was brought up and raised, I think she was a teenager during the Great Depression, and that never ever left her, you know to the point where she would have my mother gave her towels new a set of new towels for Christmas, and because her towels were so threadbare you could see through them and my grandmother's reaction was to give those towels to her other daughter because she just felt like, use it up, wear it out. If you don't need it, do without or something like that was her favorite, you know, one of her favorite mantras. But, um, I can see the generation of today, specifically young people having to go through this experience of COVID add into the fact that, you know, minimum wage is still low and they have huge debts for college. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, um, This will bring in a positive change, even though what you just said that, you know, they're looking at government and they're saying, oh, this is how government is. Maybe maybe it's at a breaking point where they're going to want to change things and they're going to, you know, want to take it into a more positive direction. I would certainly hope so.
1: No, that's a good point. I I think my my grandfather was also that way. And, and you know, he would never go out to a meal at a restaurant because, Hmm. you know, he just remembered the bottom can fall out Mm -hmm. at at any moment. So you have to be careful. And I think of this young, the the millennials, Generation Z, it's not simply the pandemic. They've grown up with gun violence. They've grown up with a deteriorating climate. And they've grown up watching politics practice this way. So it could be as opposed to the party awakening we've been discussing, that there is a generational anger and frustration Mm -hmm. that leads to new leaders. This is not tolerable anymore. And uh, that would be a great outcome, frankly. And and maybe some of the protests we've seen on criminal justice um, that are, are, are pretty broad in terms of the groups being brought in and the uh, different parts of America are joining. Maybe that's a reflection of what you're talking about. Hmm. Um, but certainly this pandemic is a, it's, it's a slap in the face mm-hmm. to this generation of when everything goes wrong and when government and leaders fail you, they're the ones who are paying the cost more than all of us. Yes. And, uh, and so maybe that could be an outcome.
0: So I want to ask you kind of two questions here and these will be my last. Um, I'd say, A, what, do you, what did you find most surprising during the researching of Newt Gingrich in your book? And then, you know, after you you know, afterward, you're done now, you've had time to sit with it and think, where do you think things are headed?
1: Well, with the first was just how deliberative he was about what he was doing, and uh, that he wasn't a Republican and a politician who shot from the hip and said whatever was on his mind and kind of figured things out, that from the early 70s through his rise to power, he always had a sense of how he was gonna capitalize on the media, Mm -hmm. how he was gonna uh, attack his opponents and smear them, and how he was gonna promote this campaign against the political establishment as a winning theme. It's always remarkable to see when a politician is that deliberative over a decade or more about their strategy and employs it. And, and that is for me, it's just a little lesson for today, not to mm-hmm. assume this is all being made up on the spot, that there's yeah. a logic uh, to what the party is doing. In terms of where this goes, it's not necessarily an optimistic book. Uh, <laughs> and, and if you study uh, the history of a party, and you see a lot of things that are going on today, they actually started decades ago. Um, yeah. It leads me to think that the Republican Party is in a place where you need fundamental changes to happen if it's really going to be different. Yeah, uh, that, that this is deeply rooted now in how the party thinks and how it acts and its history and traditions. And, and we need a transformative moment if if one of the two parties, meaning the GOP, is really to shake itself out of of what it's become.
0: Wow. Interesting. Well, I'm I'm grateful that you wrote this book. I have it on order on Amazon. It's called Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of a New Republican, of the New Republican Party. As I said, it's on Amazon. It's Likely, It's available on all platforms like uh, Barnes & Noble, and you can go into the bookstores if they're open now. (laughs) You can purchase it. Um, So why don't you tell everybody where they can find you?
1: Yeah, the best place to find me is Twitter, at Julian Zelizer, at Julian Zelizer, and uh, you can find me and follow me there uh and that's it and so uh i look forward to hearing from people
0: perfect so what i'm going to do is i'm going to include the link to your book as well as the link to your twitter in the um, description of the patreon show today i just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights it's it sounds like a good book i can't wait till it arrives and uh, thank you for being a guest
1: thanks so much for having me i appreciate it
0: bye-bye well, I'm definitely going to read this book because I don't know. I'm going to suggest another book here. Um, I've talked about it on the show, and even though it's not exactly, um, it's not exactly the same thing as what, what he's written. But I mentioned the John Birch Society, and there's a woman, uh, what's it, uh, Claire? Of course, no, I can't think of her name, and I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, Claire Connor. And she wrote a book called Wrapped in the Flag. I highly recommend this book, too, because it it, her father was one of the founders of the John Birch Society. And she was she wrote it in like 2012. I believe it was before I think the book came out before um, President Obama was reelected. But she was trying to warn everybody about, you know, what was to come. And how, you know, and and the John, and interestingly, the John Birch Society, for the longest time, had no political or legislative power. And basically, it morphed into what we now know as the Tea Party, and the Tea Party did gain power in 2010, when... Democrats decided that because we had a black president and he didn't magically restore and fix everything in five seconds after he was elected, that they weren't going to vote in the midterm. And that opened the door to a whole bunch of Tea Party people taking over seats. And so um, I think that her book would be a great uh, accompanying book to something like this book uh, that Julian wrote because it provides a very good kind of like roundabout history of how we got to where we are now, because I do think the Tea Party, I mean, Sarah Palin was like the Tea Party spokesperson or, you know, like the face of the Tea Party. Uh, and, and then I think I look at somebody like Sarah Palin and I feel like she ushered in Trump, though interestingly, it didn't take very long. I remember when I first saw, when, when, when I first saw her, I was completely freaked out because I, I understood how dangerous she was. And my thought was, America loves to put people's on, people on pedestals, and they also love to quickly knock them off those pedestals. But I think I was introduced to her in September, and I thought, will we have enough time? before November. Well, obviously it didn't take long. She, I think the one thing that really, really, really hurt her was that interview with Katie Couric asking what she read, but that wasn't the only thing that was just like the straw that broke the camel's back. But I I always like to point out that um, misogyny is not partisan because she was so very quickly um, made to look like a fool. And, you know, she was kind of like an embarrassment for the Republican party. But Donald Trump got elected. Donald Trump, who bragged about bra- uh, grabbing women by the pussy, who made fun of a dis- disabled journalist, who was just uh, unbelievable talking about the fucking size of his hands at debates with Republicans. We made him president. Granted, you know, Hillary actually won that election with the popular vote, yes, but the way that our system is set up, she lost because of. Obviously, all the smears from Republicans, um, specifically the kinds of smears that we're seeing or or that uh, Julian wrote about in his book from um, people like Newt Gingrich, you know, and then Russian interference and all of uh, all of it tied in. So we all know that Hillary should have and actually did win the popular vote. But because the way our system is set up, she lost. And, you know, this man did get legitimate votes. Whether they were based on disinformation, misinformation, or even in some cases, I don't, I would not be surprised that if it were true, some of those vote numbers were changed, which we may never know. It's just every day, you know, we wake up to some new crazy information. Today, we woke up to the Supreme Court, seven to two, decided that, uh, you know, employers can enforce, discriminate, you know, like use religion to discriminate against women who want birth control. So if you work for Costco, and uh, those people who want what's not, I guess Costco's not a good one. But you know, I, I hobby lobby or whatever that they have the right that employer has the right to decide whether or not you can get birth control on your insurance plans. So I think that's a really good reason to vote, right? Because we've got an election coming up and I, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but everybody who's listening to this show already knows. You feel the same way I do for the most part. Uh, not that you agree with everything I say, but we are all on the same page that we have to get, ele- you know, get Biden elected and, and get switch the Senate to blue and we need to keep power and all of that. But I think what we also need to do, I mean, we all know that, right? But You have friends and you have family and sometimes it's a little uncomfortable to bring up politics, but it's so funny because like every time I go to the store, I can't even help myself. It's not every time, but a lot of the times, you know, I'm out and about and I'm buying something and I talk to the person who's ringing me up and I say, you know, I I hope you're registered to vote. I never push a party or even say that I'm Democrat unless uh, unless we start up a conversation. But um, I'm always encouraging people to vote, and I think it's really important right now that we go beyond and above what we normally would do in an election. So whether it's volunteering, making calls, talking to you know talking to your friends and your neighbors, and really explaining the importance of why we need to vote in 2020, it's just it's so vital, and I just hope that. I just really hope that we can pull this off because that—that's it, man. <laughs> and I wrote something yesterday, going back to the conversation I had about the Never Trumpers, because I did post something on social media. I posted a tweet that went viral, and it said, um, "Raise your hand if you'd like to see the Lincoln Project do a video connecting, you know, Trump and Epstein." So I don't know if they will. And, of course, I got plenty concerned liberals saying, but I don't trust them, and they're just going to attack Democrats. And it's like, yeah, of course they're going to attack Democrats. Of course they're going to go. I mean, they're going to. But we are basically in a war for the soul of this country. And so, you know, during times of war, we make coalitions with people that we normally would not. If we lose this election, goodbye American experiment. Goodbye, you know, any possibility of having a fair election in 2024. We already know there's going to be cheating in 2020. That's a given. So, but, but we can flood the polls. We can make a difference. In 2024, that won't be possible. It'll be completely killed. There will be no hope. And we will we will have a Russian style oligarchy uh, in this country that's it is already here but it will be the new norm it will be the way that we live and it will you know it, it Putin is uh, I just read an article about him yesterday and I think that it it had something to do with him staying in power much longer than he should and he just keeps win you know air quote winning elections no you know and and, and it's gonna be like that here if if Trump is reelected he won't be reelected legitimately. It would have to be because of uh, of tweeting. It would have to be because of cheating in a variety of ways. I just, I I think that as far as the Lincoln project is concerned or some of these conservatives, you know, I've made very clear that I do not like Rick Wilson at all. I know a lot of people really like him and he does have a smart ass, uh, you know, sense of humor. He makes great attack ads, but he's going to make those same attack ads against us. So don't get too cozy with them. I just told, you know, the thing that I wrote was like, look, I have no problem holding hands with the very people who I know. I know they helped get Trump elected in the bigger picture and I I, I hold them responsible, but there's nothing I can do about it. And there is definitely um, some weight when a conservative goes after Trump, more weight than when a Democrat goes after Trump, even when the Democrats are badass there's just more weight when it's coming from a conservative. So, yeah, it's a, it's an odd coalition of people that I'm happy to hold hands with during this particular time. But what I say is don't give them money. They don't need money. They all have plenty of fucking money give your money to democratic candidates go ahead and share those videos without guilt because that doesn't mean you're a centrist it doesn't mean that you're supporting them it doesn't mean that it's erasing away what they did in order to get us to where we are right now it just means that we are in a very dire position and you know when in times of war you you do things that you normally wouldn't do because the goal is winning And if we're going to win, we need some of these, the kinds of ads that the Lincoln Project is putting out. And I really do hope they put out um, an Epstein video. We'll find out. Anyway, that's going to be it for now. I got Greg Oliar to come back on the 15th, on Wednesday the 15th, which is actually tax day now. I'm not sure who's coming up on Monday, but I know know next uh, week we're going to probably be talking with Steph on the patrons-only podcast. So definitely next week is going to be fun. There's a couple of people that I'm trying to figure out who I want to have on for Monday, and I'm not sure I'm kind of like going back and forth. So you'll find out when I find out. (laughs) All right. uh, Don't forget, follow me on Twitter at author Kimberly K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y. Don't forget that extra E. You can also visit my Amazon page, Kimberly A. Johnson, You can read my books, Peyton's Choice and American Woman, The Pole Dance. There's also Ain't No Sunshine and The Virgin Diaries. And last, don't forget, um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, once again, check out my mom's book, The Melt. It's about a global pandemic after the apocalypse. That's a a good story. So far, she's been getting some good positive reviews. So um, that's going to be it for today. Thank you for listening. Love your comments. Don't forget to comment. Stay safe, everybody.